This is Michael Cohen, and you're listening to the Mayor Culpa Podcast. We'll call it a split decision, folks, but the first hearing in the criminal case against Donald Trump for his attempt to overturn the 2020 presidential election got underway Friday in Washington, D.C., and presiding over the bench was U.S. District Judge Tanya Chutkin, who issued a warning shot to Trump and his legal team that the more inflammatory statements he makes connected to the case, the greater the urgency will be to move the case quickly to trial. The basis of the Friday hearing was to hear oral arguments relating to Special Prosecutor Jack Smith's motion for a protective order, barring Trump from revealing evidence he encounters in discovery or intimidating or threatening witnesses. While Chutkin agreed with Trump's defense team on a looser version of a protective order for evidence in the case, she largely sided with the prosecution on what sensitive material should be protected. She rejected prosecutors' broader protective order proposal that sought to prevent the public release of all evidence that they hand over to Trump's defense as they prepare for trial. She instead seemed poised to impose a more limited protective order that would bar the public release only of materials deemed sensitive, such as grand jury materials. Judge Chutkin also pushed back against Trump attorney John Laurel's assertion that his clients threatening social media taunts are protected speech. Mr. Trump, like every American, has a First Amendment right to free speech, but that right is not absolute. In a criminal case such as this one, the defendant's free speech is subject to the rules, the judge said. Chutkin and Lauro also had several heated exchanges about what the 2024 presidential contender should be allowed to say about the evidence that is turned over to him in the case. No one disagrees that any speech that intimidates a witness would be prohibitive. What we are talking about is fair use of information, Loro said at one point, putting forward a hypothetical that Trump is publicly remarking on something from his personal memory that is also evidence in the case. The fact that he is running a political campaign currently has to yield to the administration of justice, the judge said. And if that means he can't say exactly what he wants to say in a political speech, that is just how it's going to have to be. Laurel put forward a hypothetical of Trump making a statement while debating his former Vice President Mike Pence, who is also running for the White House now and is a key witness in the criminal case that overlapped with what's in discovery. Well, the judge wasn't sold. He is a criminal defendant. He is going to have constraints the same as any defendant. This case is going to proceed in the normal order, Chutkin said. You are conflating what your client needs to do to defend himself and what he wants to do politically, she told him. And what your client does to defend himself has to happen in this courtroom, not on the internet. The judge's closing words also included a vow that the case will advance like any legal procedure in the criminal justice system. The defense has reiterated at length Mr. Trump's First Amendment right to speak about his case and any evidence in it, she said, 
adding that Trump will be afforded all the rights of any criminal defense and it will take an effort to avoid a carnival atmosphere. It is a bedrock principle of the judicial process in this country, she said, while quoting precedent, that legal trials are not like elections, to be won through the use of a meeting hall, the radio, and newspaper. This case is no exception, Judge Chutkin said. She warned that even ambiguous statement from either party or counsel can threaten the process. The more a party makes inflammatory statements that could taint a jury pool, she said, the greater the urgency will be that we proceed to trial quickly to ensure a fair trial. The hearing serves several purposes beyond the establishment of a protective order. First and foremost, it set the tone for how Judge Chutkin will run her courtroom and this hearing. She refuses to allow the proceedings to degenerate into a circus and won't accept any crap from Trump. Her admonishments to Lauro about his client were essentially, fuck around and find out. At the same time, Chutkin did provide some latitude for the defense in her ruling. With this, beyond being a fair ruling, it strategically helped quiet the nonsense that Trump will not receive a fair trial. The hearing was held just hours after Smith proposed that the trial begin on January 2nd of 2024, two weeks before the first nation Iowa GOP caucus, provoking an angry eruption from Trump on Truth Social. Only an out-of-touch lunatic would ask for such a date, one day into the new year and maximum election interference with Iowa, he wrote. The written filing from prosecutors in the office of the special counsel, Jack Smith, set an aggressive timetable that Trump's lawyers are expected to seek to substantially delay, according to a person close to the former president. A January 2nd trial date would vindicate the public's strong interest in a speedy trial, prosecutors wrote. It is difficult to imagine a public interest stronger than the one in this case in which the defendant, the former president of the United States, is charged with three criminal conspiracies. Prosecutors, moreover, expect their case to take up to six weeks, meaning that Trump's campaign would be severely disrupted ahead of a Super Tuesday blitz of 16 contests on March 5th. Smith's bold move on Thursday was the most startling indication yet of how the 2024 election has now become inextricably entangled with Trump's battle to avoid serial felony convictions. The campaign trail will run as much through various courtrooms as through the primary process. If Smith gets his way and it goes to trial just after New Year's Day, Trump would have to appear in different courthouses in different cities throughout much of the winter and spring. That would be on top of his relentless campaigning. All in all, we are in for an absolute shit show, folks. How all of this comes out on the other side, personally, I have no fucking idea. Attention, sleep enthusiasts! It's time to seize the moment and elevate your sleep experience with Ghostbed's Labor Day Sale. 
I love the folks at Ghostbed because they're a family-owned company known for their uncompromising commitment to quality. With attention to detail and a dedication to craftsmanship, Ghostbed creates mattresses that are built to last. No shortcuts, just the assurance of exceptional durability and support. So experience the ghost bed difference with their signature and patented cooling materials that ensure that you stay cool, comfortable, and sweat-free throughout the night as we head into the summer. So during the Labor Day sale, you can enjoy incredible savings on Ghostbed's entire range of mattresses. It's the perfect time to upgrade your sleep experience without breaking the bank. And now for the main event. My next guest on Mea Culpa is the legal legend Nick Ackerman. Ackerman was formerly a federal prosecutor and the assistant United States attorney in the Southern District of New York, where he specialized in going after white-collar crime. Prior to the SDNY, he made his name as the assistant special Watergate prosecutor with the Watergate Special Prosecution Force under Archibald Cox and Leon Jaworski. There, Ackerman was instrumental in helping crack open the vast conspiracy orchestrated by President Nixon and his co-conspirators that resulted in Nixon's resignation and several prison sentences for his underlings. Ackerman joins us today to discuss how Trump is basically screwed in his election interference trial and while televising the trial, in his opinion, would be a terrible idea. So let's go now to that conversation. Alrighty, Nick. So look, lots to talk about, lots going on here in America, starting with Trump and Walt Nada pleading not guilty. And then you have the other guy, Carlos de Oliveira. His arraignment is postponed. Imagine he still can't find a lawyer. I mean, that's what it's that's what the postponement is about. He can't find a lawyer. And then, of course, you have Clarence Thomas. Think about this. Clarence Thomas, Supreme Court justice, taking gifts from mega billionaires, some of whom have been before him on the Supreme Court with different cases. I mean, there's so much. And then you have this wackadoodle from Utah who wants to kill Joe Biden, Kamala Harris, Alvin Bragg, you know, Fannie Willis and everybody else on behalf of Donald. So Look, we have a lot to talk about, but the first thing that I actually really want to talk to you about is in a recent New York Times opinion essay, you wrote while televising the Trump trials is a bad idea, saying that the arguments in favor of broadcasting the trials do not give enough weight to the dangers that could pose to trial witnesses and jurors or the potential to undermine the integrity of the trial process. Now, Nick, I want to be honest with you. I've been yelling this from the rooftops literally since I heard, since I heard that they wanted to televise them, because I'm with you. I think it is, look, while I'm all for transparency, I think it is a horrible, horrible idea. If you would, describe for my listeners how this would manifest in a trial and why you ultimately think, as do I, that it's a bad idea? Well, a number of reasons. First of all, with respect to witnesses and jurors, um, having your face uh, exposed in broadcast worldwide uh, is going to leave you open to every wackadoodle who's out there that's in favor of Donald Trump. Uh, and you could very well have happen 
just like happened yesterday in Provo, uh, Idaho, or happened after the search warrant was executed on Mar-a-Lago, where some crazy showed up at the FBI field office in Cincinnati, Ohio, and tried to shoot an FBI agent. I mean, it is extremely important that these witnesses be protected, that their um, images not be out there, that people not see who they are. Some of these people are even uh, unknown people at this point, some of whom are FBI agents. It's going to be a lot of boring testimony about um, surveillances and records. Uh, and these people should not be exposed to this um, sort of situation where people are going to make them make them targets. Um, and the other real big reason here is that one thing that Donald Trump excels at is reality TV. Uh, and what he would do is try and turn this whole proceeding into a reality TV show um, through his lawyers by telling him to do certain things. I mean, since he's really the chief lawyer in the defense here, he's the guy who calls all the shots. So he's going to be telling him what to do because it's good for the TV cameras, good for his campaign. Uh, he can sit there and make a couple outbursts, make some gestures, uh, eye motions, hand motions. Uh, he's going to come right close to the line where a judge could hold him in contempt. And the problem, of course, is all of these judges really don't have experience dealing with a guy like this uh, who knows how to manipulate the system. Um, and the judge is even the one in New York who's been um, basically dragged through uh, the coals uh, by Donald Trump has done nothing despite all of the statements that Donald Trump has made about him. So they're very reluctant to put him in prison until in such time as he's convicted by a jury of his peers. So that's the problem here, is that one, witnesses and jurors would be in danger, and two, uh, this gives Donald Trump an opportunity to manipulate the system where he's actually pretty competent. I may not be competent in a lot of other areas, but when it comes to reality TV, he knows how to put on a good show, and he knows what is going to catch the viewer's attention. Yeah. So all of a sudden I hear everybody start yelling about transparency. We've seen judges like the one in Florida the other day, um, also the judge here in New York, admonish Donald for making certain statements that are offensive, that are dangerous, and so on. And then all of a sudden, he decides he's going to do it again. And now they have this possibility of doing uh, a gag order or potentially holding him in contempt, which I agree with you, they won't do it. Why? I don't know. If it was you, certainly if it was me, they would have hauled my ass back, you know, to prison in a half a second, but not Donald. No question about not, it. But no not, question not about Donald. It. He, gets, he gets this pass. And I agree because with you. I don't give a shit if he was. I don't give a president. shit if he was. You know uh, what? What role he oh, played? Right. right? It makes no difference. It's supposed to be right. One yeah. rule of law for all of us. Two seconds after he loses to E. Jean Carroll, he's on CNN saying the same things, and then worse. And now, of course, they're bringing him back. You know, that's of course civil. All right. Here's the problem. Right. I do want the information to be provided to the people because he was the former president, because 
it is important for them to be able to see and to hear for themselves what's actually going on in the courtroom. But now all of a sudden you see stuff like Alvin Bragg has police escorts and security, Tish James, Fannie Willis, Jack Smith, all of them. But you're right. What about those of us witnesses that they intend to call? How, did that, how does government asking us to do so much in order to prosecute the man, we don't get shit. And if God forbid you have an issue, which I have had, and sadly more than just a few, who do you call? Who's there to help you? The answer is no one. The answer is no one. Well, the problem is to put somebody in the witness protection program is extremely expensive. I probably at one time in the U.S. Attorney's Office had the most witnesses in that program. And I know what it takes to get into it and what they have to go through to do it. That's not the answer. The answer here is that the press has got to do a better job of reporting on these trials. I mean, in fact, the press does a better job reporting on football games than they do on criminal trials. In football games, you get an expert up there, a guy who's a former football player who can describe play by play exactly what's happening, uh, actually tells the public what's going on if they're not experts in football. What the media does is they send in some guy who's a reporter, yeah, which is great, a lot of good reporters, but they're not seasoned criminal trial lawyers to understand what is going on and be able to explain it to the public as as the end of each day. I mean, there are transcripts that could be used to do this, but somebody who really understands what a trial is all about and how one practices in a trial court is absolutely critical. Give you an example. The Eugene Carroll case. Everybody reported um, on the fact that uh, Eugene Carroll wound up uh, testifying for you know one, one day, and they reported that... Um, Trump's lawyer cross-examined her for about a day and a half uh, and went on and on and reported what she said. But what they didn't report was that what this lawyer did was basically make the usual rookie mistake of trying to keep a defendant or a party on cross-examination way too long. What he wound up doing was building up her credibility and asking her questions that would not have necessarily been proper or admissible on her direct testimony. He should have just taken her through a series of yes or no questions to support his summation. That is, did you report, you didn't report this to anybody at Bergdorf Goodman, correct? And she'd have to say yes. You didn't call the police, correct? And she'd have to say yes. He could have done that all in 45 minutes gotten her off the stand, and then used that in his summation and read from her testimony. Instead, he's up there beating away, asking her all kinds of questions that at the end of the day made her the most credible witness in the courtroom, and nobody called him on it. Yeah, well, look. So that's the kind of reporting you need in these, in these trials. You can't let rookies go in there and then come out and tell the public what happened. Right. But you were a you know Watergate prosecutor and you handle, even to this day, very complex criminal cases. There's no doubt that CNN uh, or MSNBC will call you and ask you to come in and to explain uh, the information in a credible and in a um, legitimate way. 
The problem is, except they're not going to have me sit in the trial. That's what they're not going to do. You can't really do this with credibility unless you actually are in the trial and are able to report Mm -hmm. it. That's what they don't have. None of the networks have this. It's like I say, they report football games, you know, in much more detail and precision than they do criminal trials. So I think that's where the media is really falling flat. They can also make better use by getting transcripts on a daily basis so that when they do report it, they can actually show what people said in the courtroom. And if you've got the right expert there who had attended the courtroom to give the public some idea of how the person came across, how the jury reacted to the person, uh, what the atmosphere was in the courtroom in terms of trial practice and how this thing was playing with the jury, that would go a long way to providing transparency. Just watching a trial, even on C-SPAN, most people are going to fall asleep. There's a lot of boring parts of it. You get to the charge to the jury. My God, even I used to doze off through that. Um, that's just not going to grab the the the, the, the public. Uh, and of course, the problem is that TV networks have to have commercial breaks. Um, You can't have people giving commentary during the course of a trial. There's no instant replays in a trial. Um, It just can't be done that way. Uh, And what they really need to do is do a little introspection there and decide how they can really inform the public about what goes on in each of these trials. Okay. But the problem is, like, I'm going to use myself as somebody who is potentially expected to be a witness in one, if not two, of these matters. I don't want to be in the witness protection plan. Even when I was at Otisville, it was offered to me to go to K-Block, which is where they keep the witness protection um, inmates because of death threats. And I didn't want it. I wouldn't want it here either. I'm not walking away from my family. I'm not walking away from my friends. I'm not walking away from my life that I'm trying to rebuild. Bullshit. For what? And I'm only one person. Remember, there's going to be five different indictments against Trump. Two more definitively on the way. January 6th and also Fannie Willis, uh, Fulton County, Georgia case. There will be five. How many witnesses? Let's just... Let's just be stupid for a second and say each and every one of these five will only have three witnesses on behalf of the government. Now, we know there's much more. Of course, I'm being stupid and I'm for a point. That's 15 people, witnesses who are going to be splashed, as you correctly stated, going to be splashed all over the media for people like this loony Craig Robertson out of Utah, who was making death threats to Joe Biden, who was also, you know, making threats to Alvin Bragg and to Fannie Willis. I understand. Again, I want them to be safe, but I also want witnesses to be safe, too. So what are you going to do now? Start providing police protection to each and every, you know, one of the witnesses. And again, Being stupid, I said three in each of these five indictments. That's 15. Of course it's many more. So how does something like this even work? And why would a witness in his right mind, 
Seriously, why would a witness turn around and agree and fuck this bullshit on subpoenas and so on? You can subpoena anybody all you want. You don't have the right to put their lives in jeopardy. All right. Yeah, I know you subpoena. You could wipe my ass with that subpoena. If I believe that my life is in jeopardy, why in the world? Fuck you and your subpoena. I'm not putting my life uh, on the line when you have 24-7 police protection. How do we? This is what Donald wants to do. And successfully, he's doing it. He's creating all of this rigmarole. He's creating all of this fear and anxiety and angst in everybody's lives and using stupid people like this Craig Robertson, the, sh the, the guy who unfortunately got killed, shot and killed by the FBI. He's using people like that. Well, look at what happened with the January 6th committee. I mean, the star witness there, Cassidy Hutchinson, uh, one, she only testified because uh, Congressman Cheney was able to talk her into doing it. But even when she did it, um, they had to play clips from her deposition um, just because she was a pretty nervous witness. And afterwards, she had to go in hiding with security with her family for a, a period of time. I mean, she's not going to want to come out of that now, go testify in this January 6th trial, and all of a sudden have to be worried about security again. I mean, it's just not fair for somebody like that. Um, and the benefit to the public in seeing this on camera, I, I must say, is is just not that great when you balance against it the kind of antics that Donald Trump is going to pull in trying to turn this into a reality TV show. Yeah. So I'm curious then, if you could take a step back for a moment and discuss your view of the size and the scope of what is, you know, of what's occurring right now, that a former president... A former president of the United States is being charged with the most treacherous act in opposition to democracy, right? Rule of law and the peaceful transfer of power in our country's history. So if you would, discuss with my listeners what goes through your mind when you're thinking about things like this. Oh, this is totally unprecedented for sure. Um, but, you know, these these indictments are, are all serious. I mean, it's not just the January 6th. Uh, the case being brought by Alan Bragg really is kind of the first bookend to the January 6th. Uh, as the first paragraph in the statement of facts with that indictment says, uh, Donald Trump uh, paid off this hush money and covered it up through false documentation, basically defrauding the voters from knowing this information prior to the time they voted in 2016. So in 2016, what does he do? He basically hides from the voters material information that would have made a difference in how the election came out, particularly since it followed right after the Access Hollywood tape came out and all of the hubbub about that. And then now with January 6th, uh, he's being charged with crimes for trying to stay in office, basically, again, defrauding the voters by lying to them about dead people voting and out-of-state people voting um, and, and felons voting, et cetera. So what you've got him doing, I mean, is a, these are simple cases. It's all about lying and trying to steal the voters' right to vote and stealing the vote. Uh, and that's what... Uh, certainly those two cases relate to. 
Um, and the other case with the classified documents, I, I think it just shows that, um, I mean, we don't know why he took those documents or what he was planning to do with them. Certainly, he was using it for retribution. He tried to use it against General Miley in that tape conversation that they're going to put into evidence. But Donald Trump doesn't do anything, as you know, without some kind of monetary motive behind it. So the question is, what was he really going to do with all those classified documents that he never bothered to read when he was president? Never mind read, understand. So what was he really going to do with that stuff? And that's the big question. Yeah, you may remember when that first broke, I was on various different programs. And I said, I think everybody's looking at this the wrong way. They all want to know what were the documents. You know, um, yeah, we knew that they were top secret, but everybody was more concerned about what was in the documents. And I keep saying, that's not what you really want to be interested in. The government right now needs to know what was the nefarious purpose that Donald had in taking those specific documents? It's not like he just grabbed a pile of papers, threw it into a box, and I'll figure it out later. He knew exactly what he was taking. The question becomes why, and more importantly, who else has seen them? Those were the arguments that I was making. And of course, you know, the host of the different shows would say, yeah, that's true. And I said, it has to be like a Where's Waldo game. Right. You have to track where Donald went each and every day. And that's not difficult because, you know, his movements are tracked by Secret Service, aircrafts and so on. And then you need to figure out who did he see? We all know that there were boxes that were placed on Air Force One. Right. You know, that big, gigantic Trump sign that flies around in the air. The 757, we know that there were boxes on it. We know that there are other people that were there. Many of them have already testified. So the question is, we need to figure out exactly the nefarious purpose. And I believe a lot of it had to do not just for money, but it was also to hold the United States hostage. That if you do this to me, I will release some of the most classified national security secrets that we have right now that will put the United States behind the eight ball. And he wouldn't give two shits about it. Yet, the guy wants to be president again. I don't get it. Well, let me take one example here that has always intrigued me is they did take some classified documents out of his safe, personal safe in his office at Mar-a-Lago. Uh, one of those documents related to President Macron of France, uh, and another of those documents related to Roger Stone uh, and his pardon uh, of his sentence. Um, and the question is, what was he doing with that stuff? I mean, why did he single that out and put it in his safe? Was he planning to blackmail people with that stuff? Was he, what was he going to use it for? I, I just, I'm at a loss to really explain what that was all about. Um, but why would he take those documents and why would he single them out and put them in his safe? It's summer. You're kicking back, cooling off in a hammock. Shouldn't your boys enjoy the same luxury? So stop sweating through your shorts. Treat your pair to a pair of cool as ice Tommy John underwear. When you wear Tommy John, you're just that much more comfortable so you can do everything better. 
Tommy John underwear has dozens of comfort innovations like breathable, lightweight, moisture-wicking fabric with four times the stretch of competing brands that can keep you seven degrees cooler than cotton. With over 20 million pairs sold and thousands of five-star reviews, balls, I mean guys across America, love their Tommy Johns because there's no flopping, there's no sticking, and definitely there's no chafing. That's why Tommy John doesn't have customers. They have fanatics. One of Tommy John's fanatic raves said, and I quote, the most comfortable box of briefs ever. There's no downside. Buy one pair and you'll never want to wear any other underwear again. And you know what? I agree. I have them and I feel exactly the same way. So look, Tommy John men's underwear summer products are the best. Why? Well, because... It keeps you cool and it keeps you comfortable. At nighttime, I wear them. You're able to stay cool at night so you feel better when you wake up. You can bet your balls that you'll always be covered by Tommy John's best pair you'll ever wear or it's free guarantee. So get 20% off your first order right now at TommyJohn.com slash Cohen. That's 20% off at TommyJohn.com slash Cohen. TommyJohn.com slash Cohen. See site for details. I think another part that just needs to be thought about, how did the government even know that he had a safe? How did the government know what was inside that safe? Remember, they had very specific documented information that they provided the magistrate in order to get that search warrant. The search warrant wasn't for anywhere and everywhere that Donald Trump has access to. It was for very specific areas. And I maintain, and again, I'll say this is completely my opinion, I maintain that it's Jared and Ivanka. I mean, if you have a safe in your home, other than your children and your wife, who else knows about the safe? It's not like he's opening it up for Walt Nada. It's not like he's opening it up for this guy, Carlos de Oliveira, right? Or the guy that's bringing him in his food. Only they would know, not just about the existence of the safe, but also what's inside. What's the content of the safe and what's the content of the document? So, yeah, that's just my opinion. But I want to ask you this, being, again, a Watergate prosecutor. How does this differ in terms of scope comparing it to Watergate and the crimes of Richard Nixon? Well, Richard Nixon was across the boards in a lot of crimes. There's no question. Um, I always believed he knew about the break-in beforehand. There was no actual admissible evidence to that effect, but everything I saw in terms of how he micromanaged that campaign and how people played up to his ego, there's no way he did not know uh, what was going on. Uh, and it just didn't relate to the break-in and the subsequent cover-up. It also had to do with how they were misusing government authority, how they were using IRS to go in and uh, audit people who were considered enemies, and there was an enemies list. There was a misuse of government agencies. There was a misuse of how they handled campaign contributions. Um, there was the break-in at Dr. Fielding, who was Ellsberg's psychiatrist. Um, we believe that uh, he was involved also in other break-ins. Um, I, I mean, certain things that we never really got the full scope of what occurred. 
Um, but it was, and he was also involved in cheating on his income tax. He wound up backdating a deed of gift to, of his papers to the U.S. government at a time when um, the Tax Reform Act of 1969 precluded such a gift. Uh, so there were a whole series of crimes. A um, couple of the differences here. Um, Donald Trump is is commits a lot of his crimes out in the public view. Um, I mean, he does it himself. At least Nixon had enough smarts to have his underlings do a lot of the dirty work so that the evidence against Nixon was basically on his Oval Office tapes, which, by the way, were put in because of the 1969 Tax Reform Act, which gets around um, giving gifts of papers to the government. He was able to give gifts of tapes. So the irony here is that out of his own greed, trying to keep this huge tax deduction, which had been legitimate for him and a lot of other presidents, he basically created this taping system that in the end broke him down, just put him down because that was what that's the evidence that put him away. Um, Donald Trump, in a lot of ways, has been very careful in terms of not using email, not writing too much. Um, but again, a lot of the things he does in the open and there have been tapes I mean, there's the tape uh, that you uh, have with him when you're talking about the payment to um, Tyron McDougal, the other Tyron McDougal. Uh, there's the the tape um, in the in the classified document case where he's describing one of the classified documents to people. Uh, there are the tapes in Georgia um, where he's threatening um, Raffensperger, the Secretary of State of Georgia. Um, tapes of him with the chief investigator, the head of the. Um, House of Representatives in Georgia. So, I mean, there's a lot of tapes out there, plus some of the other people like Rudy Giuliani are all recorded and making their basic uh, pitches to uh, the Georgia legislators and the Pennsylvania legislators, all based on the same lies about fraud in the election. So it's a different kind of thing, but, you know, there's some similarities. I mean, Trump, it would appear, used the IRS to go after Comey um, and his deputy. And me. Um, and they, <laughs> I mean, yeah, yeah. Right. I mean, Senator Dick Trump Durbin, Trump. Senator Dick Durbin right. called on the IG to open an investigation to add me to the list of whether it was Comey or um, uh, who was it, Andrew Weissman, uh, I think, or there was somebody else to add me to the list of people that they're in that they're looking into because it's awfully suspicious, the actions of the IRS. That case never went anywhere. Not for me, not for Comey, not for anybody. And that's the problem, too. Donald seems to get away with all of this shit. We all know what he's doing. For God fuck's sake, I wrote a book about the whole thing, outlining it, revenge. I put into great detail, not just what's been reported, but statements from FBI agents, former and current, right, who turned around and talk about the things that Donald did that we all know about, but yet there's no prosecution, there's no investigations. All you get is somebody like Jim Jordan wanting to now investigate Joe Biden for the weaponization of the Justice Department against Donald. I mean, I'm I'm so lost right. with what we are doing as a country. Well, don't forget, I mean, this special counsel now um, is overwhelmed. I mean, he's got a lot on his plate. 
Um, if one were to try and investigate all the crimes here and prosecute all the crimes that Trump committed, um, you'd really be up to your eyeballs for the next 10 years in doing so. So they've got to make decisions. And it seems to me that the cases that they've indicted so far are pretty much slam dunks. I mean, the evidence is overwhelming. They should be able to get convictions in all three of those states. And the one in Georgia should be as well. So it doesn't make any difference how you get them to the big house. Um, as long as you get them there. And I think that's the most important thing is deciding which of those are. Now, the big difference with Watergate, of course, is the climate was different. Once the Republicans realized uh, that Nixon was guilty as sin, uh, Barry Goldwater and a bunch of other uh, members of the Republican Senate uh, went up to Nixon to the White House and said, look, the, the jig is up. Uh, you've got to leave. You know, we can't defend you on this in the impeachment trial. Um, and Nixon had enough sense to resign. Um, I don't think Donald Trump in a million years is ever going to back down from any of this, that the only way he's not going to run for president is if he essentially loses the primaries, which I don't know. It's it's kind of hard to say what's going to happen now, with now especially a fourth indictment coming up. I, some of these Republicans have got to just say to themselves, how can a guy like this um, you know, be the standard bearer for the party under indictment four times uh, and how that's not going to impact the Senate races, the House races, the governor's races, probably even the dog catcher races. I mean, what, what candidate on the Republican Party is going to want to have to justify at every press conference? How can you be running on a ticket with Donald Trump, who's under indictment for it? Sure. But Nick, I mean, is it I mean, look at how jaded we have all become. Oh, my God. How could you run on the same ticket as a guy who's now been indicted four times? My question would be, how could you be on the same ticket as a guy who's indicted once, twice, three times? Right. Why is four or three or five the magic number? I mean, they all know who and exactly what he is. And yet they still defend him. Look at them coming from the Marjorie Toilet Greens to the Lauren Hoberts and, and the Ted Cruz's and the Matt Gates's and, you know, the Josh Hawley's. And you could just go with a Lindsey Graham's. You could keep going down the entire list. Right. I mean, it doesn't matter to them, which kind of then brings me back to the very first question that we were talking about. Right. Which is. I mean, these people that are watching Trump, that is still attending the rallies, whether they're loaded to the gills or they're basically half empty, they do believe that this is all politically motivated prosecution, that this whole thing against Donald is unfair because Donald somehow has the ability to convince them that he is the victim. Donald's always the victim, right? So it right, goes back right, to it goes back to the first thing that we were talking about. Do you think that maybe just maybe if these people see with their own eyes and listen to the trial with their own ears, you know, basically how the sausage is made, that they will somehow be less inclined to swallow all of this Trump bullshit and maybe he doesn't make it to the primary? No, I don't see that affecting the hardcore supporters. It's not going to make any difference. Um, I think the fact out there of three, four indictments is going to have a major impact on independent voters who actually decide presidential elections now. 
Uh, so I, I think, you know, if you're if you're in politics and the whole idea of being in politics is trying to expand your base, expand your vote. He's not doing that. I mean, he's just playing to his own base and he's not going to go any further with it because this kind of activity is going to turn off people in the Philadelphia suburbs, the Atlanta suburbs. This is not going to be these are not positive facts that are going to help him get elected in a, a you know, a general election. And I got to believe people in the Senate and the House have got to be thinking the same thing. I mean, they're going to go down and smoke with this guy uh, because they're all going to be tarred with Donald Trump. I mean, he will get his vote from his base, sure enough. Um, but he's not going to get beyond that. And that's his big problem. And that's the problem of the Republican Party right now. You know, if you had the old days prior to the primary system um, back in 1968, and you had more of the party elders and statesmen actually coming together and picking the nominee and having a lot more say in who the nominee would be, there's no way they would ever pick Donald Trump at this point. I mean, he would be just out of it completely. Um, but, you know, because of what happened at the Chicago uh, Democratic Convention and the George McGovern Commission afterwards trying to open up the process by having all these primaries, um, it's created this problem um, because the people who know best um, the potential nominees to be president are not the ones who are heavily involved in the selection of that president. It used to be that the primaries were simply a way to show that you had public appeal and that you could win in a general election. That's what happened with John F. Kennedy. He won uh, West Virginia. He won, uh, you know, other states, Wisconsin, um, that were important to show that a Catholic could actually win a presidential election. Uh, now it's a whole different thing. This is all decided by all the voters. Um, and the people who know these candidates the best are really not involved in the process anymore. Well, like I said, our country is going through some changes and not for the best. But Nick, you said on CNN that Judge Chutkin's refusal to consider pointless postponements was a bad omen for the Trump legal team. I was watching that and it just, it actually made me giggle. If you would, unpack for my listeners why you believe Trump to be legally in trouble based on the judge's statement and the judge's behavior. Well, this judge has been so on top of this case. I mean, I was following it this last weekend. Every time Trump's lawyers made a motion, put something in, I mean, she responded within several hours. I mean, I, I was absolutely amazed. This judge was working on Saturday and Sunday. They were trying to make a big issue out of a, a an order that, that basically would prohibit Donald Trump from using the discovery for anything other than the lawsuit, which is a standard order, which, by the way, is almost identical to the ones that he agreed to in Miami in the, in the classified documents case and the one that was entered in New York um, in, in the um, false document case. So what they're trying to do, and it was so obvious, was trying to drag out this whole business about this protective order, which I got to tell you, is a pretty minor item. I don't think I've ever, as a prosecutor, even as a defense lawyer, ever had issues with a protective order. The bottom line is you can only use the discovery 
for the purposes of the case, period, the end. You can't use it to disseminate it to the public and argue your case in front of the public. And this judge is pretty well attuned to that. They tried to get out of you know, putting over the conference that's going to happen tomorrow until next week uh, because one of the lawyers can't make it and because Donald wanted both of his lawyers to be there, which is total nonsense. As long as you've got one lawyer there, that's all you need. And she said, no, we're going to meet, you know, Friday, whatever it was, 10 o'clock. And I would think she's going to decide this right on the spot because all of the arguments they're making are just asinine. I mean, it, it's all designed... Um, to try and delay, delay. And boy, to, to take this as the first item to try and get delay on is, is really kind of a stupid move. Because like I say, normally a protective order is just perfunctory. This is a joke. And then on top of it all, what do they do? They put in a motion yesterday, I believe, to try and exclude all this time between the arraignment and the conference on August 28th, they excluded from the Speedy Trial Act, which is also ridiculous, which is also transparently an effort to try and delay the trial here. So I think we're going to see a few actions by this judge in the next couple of days where she's going to basically put these guys in their place and move this right along. I mean, the problem, of course, is the government can't produce the discovery until this order is in place. And then if they can't produce it, they're going to, of course, argue, oh, there's too much, too many documents to go through. We've got to delay the trial. Well, the fact of the matter is they're delaying getting the documents right now by going through this nonsensical um, kind of dance over the protective order. And on top of it all, um, the government is intent on providing them with the discovery of witness statements, uh, people who will testify at trial. That's unheard of. Under federal law, that does not have to be produced until after um, the witness actually testifies. Normally, what the U.S. Attorney's offices do is provide it at least the night before. I never provided it any earlier than the night before. I uh, no reason to. I mean, the law didn't require me to do that. Um, but they, these guys are going to get like, I don't know how many thousands of pages and they're going to claim, oh, they need all kinds of time to go through that. When, in fact, they have no right to even have the stuff now. And it gives them a big leg up to be able to at least look at what the witnesses are saying and how they could possibly defend and cross-examine these witnesses. So we're going to see a lot of kind of ridiculousness going on with this. But I am pretty convinced that based on how this judge is handling this right now that we're looking at a January, February trial date. This is not a very difficult thing to get the trial right away. Smith purposely made this with just one defendant. So there's only one defendant, one set of lawyers for one defendant, makes it a much simpler case. Um, and the bottom line is it's like any other fraud case I had, um, that the first thing I'd say to the jury is, ladies and gentlemen, this is about lying and it's about stealing. It's about lying to the public that there was fraud in the election, which there was not. And it's about trying to steal uh, your vote um, during that presidential election back in 2020. Um, it's that simple. I mean, that's what they're going to show. And they're going to bring in one witness after another that's going to support that very simple theme. Uh, and that's what they're worried about. That's why they want to delay this, because 
The sooner this gets to trial, the sooner Donald Trump is convicted. You know, what's funny is in the $500 million lawsuit that Donald filed, I should say the frivolous lawsuit, this retaliatory lawsuit that he filed against me out of Southern District of Miami, he's actually arguing, or I should say his lawyer on his behalf is arguing the exact opposite of what they're saying here in Chutkin's case, which is... They do not want me to be permitted to release any of the information that will ultimately, you know, come to uh, my possession, whether it will be depositions, whether it be any of the documents that we're seeking in discovery to prove, of course, the frivolity of this case. And he's claiming, (laughs) this is the greatest, he's claiming that... By providing this information to me could jeopardize Trump's rights against self-incrimination in some of the other matters that are currently being handled. Oh, that, that's absurd. He brought the lawsuit. So, Agreed. So how can he possibly withhold documents? And if he withholds them because of the Fifth Amendment, you would have the right to basically get the adverse inference that the reason he's not providing him is because they do incriminate him. And that's what he's holding. But the the adverse inference is not the job of the defendant. That was really a plaintiff's move. Right. You know, I mean, his job is to push the case forward as a plaintiff. He did. Do you know his lawyer did not want Donald to sit for the deposition until 90 days after the election? And again, he's the one that brought the the lawsuit. And so he's supposed on September 6th sit for this deposition. And, um, you know, I want the ability to do with the transcript and the video with what I want to do with it. I'm not I'm not bound by I shouldn't be bound by anything. I, of course, I leave that to the judge's determination. But it's the exact opposite of what they're asking for here in Chutkins. But I am curious, though, Nick. What do you make of Trump's pushing back against Chukin's uh, protective order? Do you foresee maybe a contempt charge against Trump? Should he continue to use you know, social media to threaten witnesses and potentially discuss evidence that he's privy to as a result of the discovery process? Well, look, I think as a general matter, as I said, Um, These judges are reluctant to hold him in contempt and create a whole other issue here. However, um, there is going to be a boundary at which it could happen. I mean, as he keeps trying to push the envelope here, which he's doing every day, he does it with something else. Um, And there could come a point where he just goes one step too far. I mean, Right now, he has been very careful about just kind of tiptoeing up to that boundary. Although I must say, any other defendant in the United States would be cooling his, you know, heels right now in a prison. Um, but I think that depending what he does and how this proceeds, he could very well wind up finding himself in contempt. I mean, that could absolutely happen here because. Um, I, I just don't know how careful he can continue to be. I mean, the guy is a loose cannon in a lot of ways. And all he needs to do is one little thing that crosses the line and he may find himself in deep water. I mean, he's already done it. He's the one that's out there 
sparking this anger and this um, this you know the, this language that caused this guy in Utah to make the statements that he did and ultimately cost this guy, as far as I'm concerned, cost his life. But other than Eileen Cannon, I, I'm with you. I don't think anybody's going to hold him, you know, to a protective order or, you know, to hold him in contempt, which. Yeah, that's not the only person that died. It was the other guy who went to the FBI office in Cincinnati. Right. He was shot down. So, I mean, those are two people that have been killed because of his rhetoric. Uh, and there's no reason to think it's going to end there. And what I, about I the countless people that are right now sitting in jail, right, who stormed the Capitol, including Stuart Rhodes, that got 18 years? But I want to ask you this for a sec, because Trump said that he and this is not me saying it. I mean, again, you can't make this stuff up. Trump said that he will ask for the federal judge presiding in his criminal case over the attempts to overturn the 2020 election to recuse herself along with a change of venue outside of the District of Columbia, accusing the judge of being partial against him, right? I'm curious if you believe either... Do you believe either of these will come to fruition? No. First of all, with respect to the change of venue to someplace else, like if you commit a crime in the District of Columbia, you got to stand trial in the District of Columbia. There's no good reason to move it out of the District of Columbia. Um, he's not going to win. He's not going to come close on that one. It's not like he's not known in other parts of the country. Um, you can't say just because they didn't vote for him in the District of Columbia. That's no reason to change venue. He decided to commit his crimes in D.C. Uh, as they say in the law, Tough noogies. Um, as to the uh, the second issue, um, which is what was the protective order? What, what was the second issue that you mentioned? The protective. Um, yes, the the second issue order. was the, was no, the. Yeah, there's no way she's not going to answer that. I mean, no one. The whole idea of a protective order is to use it only to use discovery only for the purposes of the case. It's not to be used for television appearances. It's not to be used for political rallies. It only has one purpose and one purpose only, and that's how it's used in every case tried uh, in the United States courts, uh, is to use it for the trial. And when the trial's over, uh, they're required to return it to the government. So, I I mean, both of these are really simple. Uh, Oh, the other one is the recusal that you mentioned. Uh, the only way you get a recusal in any court in the United States is to actually show actual bias by the judge. That usually involves a situation where there's a relative or some family member uh, that's involved with one of the parties in some way. Um, it doesn't just because this judge has put away a lot of people on January 6th, just because he's losing motions before her, that is not a valid ground to get a recusal. It's a very tough burden to come in to get a recusal. Uh, you can't just say, well, this judge was appointed by Trump. Therefore, you know, the government can't do that. I mean, that's absurd. You can't do that. You've got to have very specific evidence that really shows that the judge um, himself or herself is actually biased against one of the parties. And that, that just I mean, it's almost impossible to get that. Almost impossible. And it certainly doesn't relate to any of the judges who have been signed to the cases here. 
you know, the only argument he's got is that some of these judges have ruled against him before. Um, but that's not good enough. Just not good enough. Yeah, because look, his argument, and I already see it. Not only do I see it, but in my head, and I wish I could somehow vacuum out my brain so that I could forget about all this. But I, I hear, I hear his words in my head as I was reading that article. It's just this. This would be him. It's just not possible for Trump to get a fair trial in D.C. It's just not possible. First of all, I'm not sure why he would say that. I mean, I know why he's saying that. First of all, it's a delay tactic. But also, he believes it, that he cannot get a fair trial in D.C. Do you think it's possible? Of course he can get a fair trial there. I mean, even with all this publicity, no matter where he goes, everybody's going to know who he is. Uh, the key is the voir dire that the judge conducts, the questioning of each of the jurors. Uh, to make sure that they can be fair and impartial. I've had cases with that had well-known figures involved. Um, it just takes longer to fill out the process. You wind up using a questionnaire that you have the jurors fill out, um, and then you have to go through the questioning based on some of those questionnaires. And it's not the lawyers who do it in the federal system. It's the judge that does it in the federal system. So it's a matter of asking questions to determine whether each juror uh, can set aside any prejudices and be fair and impartial. Um, I mean, the best example I, I, I kind of point to all the time is the foreperson of the Atlanta grand jury. I mean, she basically admitted that she really knew nothing about this, um, that she came into it just knowing, I guess, Donald Trump was the president, basically. Um, but she was clueless. I mean, you'd be surprised how many people in this country, even though we talk about this all the time, are absolutely clueless about all these allegations and about what's going on. Um, and she basically said that she kept away from any publicity about the allegations here that she was very careful to do that, even though the judge really didn't instruct her to do that. Um, but she went out of her way to try and be fair and impartial and just look at the evidence. And I must say, in all the jury trials I've had, which have been many, many jury trials, um, the one thing that always has impressed me is just how careful people are, how they go through the evidence, take their oath very seriously. In fact, I had even been on a jury once. I couldn't believe it, but they actually me put too, me I don't on believe it. A, a jury, yeah, in, in Manhattan. Um, but people take it very seriously. Uh, it, um, it's one of those things that when somebody gets called um, and they're put in that jury box and they're given an instruction by a judge, um, it just never say, ceases to amaze me at how careful people are and how they go through the evidence and come to a decision that is really supported by the evidence. You know so, what's interesting, Nick, it's not just federal. In the case that I had against Donald Trump for the outstanding legal fees that ultimately settled after the voir dire of the jury, the judge, Judge Joel M. Cohen, in this specific case, he's the one that actually voir the jury based upon questions presented to, um, you know, to him by my lawyers as well as uh, Trump's uh, Trump organization's lawyers. So, you know, they are going out of their way. You normally don't see that in state court. And let's not forget, Joel Cohen ruled against me, dismissed the case, which was ultimately overturned on appeal five to nothing. 
And then he acknowledged that the way he was seeing the case was wrong. He went out of his way in order to protect both sides' rights, which I thought was more towards the federal system than you see really in the state system. So I'm with you on that. I believe that Donald can get a fair trial anywhere. The problem for Donald is that for him, only facts that benefit him matter. Not all the facts, only the facts that benefit him. If there's a fact that is negative or contrary to his position, Right. Then that fact shouldn't matter and then it shouldn't be admitted and it shouldn't be you know, produced. And that's why I can't get the fair trial and so on. It, it, for him, it's not about, you know, the jury doing their job, the judge doing um, his or her job. But rather, you know, it's all about his interest in no, having a result come out the way that he wants it. And if it ha- does happen that way, the judge was great. The jury was great. His lawyer was great. And if it goes the other way, everyone's against him. Victim. Right. Rigged. It was rigged. Um, No, I think, look, the big problem he's got, if you read all three of those indictments, and I would invite anybody to do that, the problem he's got is the evidence against him in all three cases is overwhelming. There's no reason why these shouldn't be straightforward convictions in each and every case, which is why he's trying to drag it out and delay it, because Judgment Day is going to come the minute those cases are tried. Uh, and the evidence against them in each and every one of them is overwhelming. So many legal and political pundits have been arguing, and I see it all the time on television. And again, it angers me, but I'm going to stay calm for <laughs> that Fulton County DA, Fannie Willis, should actually walk back her potential indictment. In fact, they're saying that she shouldn't bring it at all now that Jack Smith brought his election indictment, which they say is based much on the same facts and circumstances. Is there, in your opinion, a risk in having two separate trials that cover much of the same ground? And if so, should she walk, should Fannie Willis, you know, walk back this potential indictment? Or do you think that there, you know, is merit um, in a separate state charge? Yeah, the short answer is no. Um, and the reason being is that, yeah, there is going to be some overlap between Georgia and the federal indictment. Um, but Georgia has a very specific interest here in the propriety and sanctity of its election process. It's a whole different situation. Uh, the most one of the most important facts here about the Georgia indictment, if he's convicted there, um, he can't. No, no one, if a Republican becomes president who says he's going to pardon Donald Trump, they can't pardon him in Georgia if he's convicted. The only way you get a pardon in Georgia is to serve your sentence for at least five years. And then it goes to a parole board, which then decides not even the governor of Georgia can pardon Right. Donald Trump, if he's convicted in Georgia. So to me, that is a, a totally dispositive, separate reason why this case um, is extremely important. But I think it's also important um, because don't forget, in the case in D.C., it's just one defendant. I think what you're going to see in the Georgia case is multiple defendants. Mm-hmm. Um, and you're going to see the entire panoply of 
uh, schemes that Donald Trump put together to try and defeat um, the vote in Georgia from the not only just the, you're going to have people who are fake electors, you're going to have people who are contacting legislators in Georgia like uh, Rudy Giuliani. You're going to have people like um, Bernie Kerrick. You know, you know, uh, you know, I think well, Sydney, I Bernie, Sydney, you know, Sydney uh, released the Kraken Powell. Possible. Right? Yeah. I mean, we just don't know how far that's going to go because um, I know they're going to be bringing in the Coffee County allegations about stealing the election mm-hmm. data after the fact, which is a direct result of the December 18th meeting in the Oval Office where they were trying to impound all the voting machines. But then they figured out, well, we've got another way to do it, which is basically steal it. Um, which is what they did. Um, and so that's not part of the, you know, uh, indictment in, in D.C. Um, I mean, there are things that, that are very specific to Georgia that are not going to be covered by the feds necessarily. Uh, and I think it's important um, that there be an indictment that has all of the players in it, which I think this Georgia indictment has that potential uh, to bring a number of different people involved into this that are just named as unindicted co-conspirators in the federal case, mainly because they're trying to get that case to trial like yesterday, if they can. They want to get that to trial in January or February. So that's why the one defendant. So in a lot of ways, Georgia may wind up bringing to justice a number of people that are not indicted by the feds. I mean, in fact, if you sit on this and just my prior experience, I mean, you always have these turf battles between the state and the feds. And sometimes they divide things up. And I got to tell you, the way this one's sounding, it may not have happened that way, but it's kind of the outcome that might have happened if they did decide to divide it up, because you not only have Donald Trump, but you've got all of his other co-conspirators being charged in Georgia. And so it just may be that this is the perfect division uh, between state and federal prosecutions, yeah, the, um, purely by happenstance. Yeah, then you're going to end up seeing a lot of flipping, you know, from people like Rudy Giuliani and others. I don't care what Rudy says. He doesn't want to spend his last days on this planet as miserable as they are behind bars. That I can assure you. But, you know, do you also remember when you and I were sitting in the green room and we we're having this conversation? And I said to you that I do believe that the Alvin Bragg case, that the Manhattan DA case, while it is the less it is the least sexy of what will amount to five indictments against Trump. It is by far the least sexy of them all. I described it always as like the Al Capone, you know, theory, which is they didn't get him on murder, extortion, racketeering, prostitution, gambling, blah, blah, blah. They got him on tax evasion. And here, I do believe that Alvin Bragg's case is the easiest one to prove. It's just factual. Here's the guy's signature. Here's yeah. Absolutely. And it's just it's an easy right. case to prove. And it's an easy case for a jury to be instructed on and to return a verdict of guilt, which, by the way, carries. Right. And it's also good because he can't be pardoned from New York State either without the governor. And I highly doubt that Hochul is going to be doing anything, you know, for Donald Trump that I could pretty much assure you. But, you know, Nick, as the hour comes to an end, I have one last question for you, because. You are a great prognosticator. And a lot of predictions are coming out. They're kind of like a dime a dozen these days. But if you, the great Watergate prosecutor, right, the great criminal attorney that you are, if you could look into a crystal ball, where is Trump two years from now? 
Is he in prison? Is he in the White House? Or is he stalking Mara Lardo, right? Diminished, neutered, some sort of, you know, half version of himself. Oh, I think two years from now, he's going to be a convicted felon. Now, whether he's in prison at that time, we'll see. But um, he's going to be a convicted felon. There's no question in my mind about that. Yeah, I agree with you wholeheartedly on that. I, I really do. And not, you know, a lot of people say, oh, Michael, you just, you just hate the guy. And so I say this all the time, and I do truly mean it. I don't want to see Donald Trump indicted, prosecuted, convicted, incarcerated, whether it's in a prison or a significant home confinement, simply because I fundamentally disagree with him or because I believe that he was responsible for my incarceration, not once but twice. I want to see him prosecuted, right? Indicted, prosecuted, convicted, sentenced, because he committed a crime. And no different than anybody else that I was either with at Otisville or I see or read about in the newspaper. He needs to be held accountable for his own dirty deeds. We're supposed to have one system of law in this country whereby, as the Democrats, as myself, of course, included, no one is above the law. That's why I want to see the process play itself out. It will. It will. Well, Nick, thank you so much for your time, your, your insight, your brilliance. Appreciate you, my friend. And I will be seeing you both in thank the you. green room and back here on Maya Culpa very soon. Okay, thanks a lot. Talk be to good. you later. Be good, my friend. And now for today's Maya Culpa. With Friday's ruling, Judge Chutkin has set the tone for what will be a no-nonsense trial, making clear to Trump's legal team that I will be scrutinizing everything the former president says in public in the lead-up to the trial. This fuck-around-and-find-out attitude from Chutkin will likely place her in direct conflict with Trump, who will do absolutely everything in his power to cross the line and provoke Chutkin. Now, how she handles the defendant could set the tone not just for this trial, but all trials to come. Toss his ass behind bars for contempt and Chutkin risks martyring the former president right away. He will undoubtedly continue to push the narrative that Chutkin is a biased judge and that he cannot and will not receive a fair trial. Trump blared Sunday morning that his legal team would be immediately asking for recusal of the U.S. District Court Judge Tanya Chutkin from his latest criminal case, proclaiming, and I quote, very powerful grounds for the demand. On top of a Chutkin recusal, he also wants to move the trial out of D.C., which he announced in, of course, all caps, screed last week as well. And here is what he says. No way I can get a fair trial, or even close to a fair trial, in Washington, D.C. There are many reasons for this, but just one is that I am calling for a federal takeover of this filthy and crime-ridden embarrassment to our nation, where murders have just shattered the all-time record. Other violent crimes have never been worse, and tourists have fled. The federal takeover is very unpopular with potential area jurors, but necessary for safety, greatness, and for all the world to see. Now, neither is likely to come to fruition, but Trump is doing what he's so good at doing. He's planting that seed of doubt and whipping it over and over and over again. All of this nonsense has nothing to do with the trial. 
This is all about the election and convincing a majority of potential Trump voters that just like the election was stolen, that this trial was unfair and that Chutkin was a biased jurist. Both claims are complete and utter bullshit, but this is where it all starts. Chutkin is about to stick her head into a hurricane as the right-wing conspiracy machine whips into overdrive. So let's hope that she can withstand the relentless abuse that will be coming her way and preside over an unimpeachable trial. Now, regardless of what happens, Trump is going to cry that there was a fix. But as they say, let justice be done, though the heavens fall. And as always, thanks for listening. Mea Culpa is brought to you by Audio Up, Midas Touch, and LSJ Media. Written by Jimmy Jelinek, our editor and managing producer is Lisa Orkin. Our executive producers are Jared Gustat, Jimmy Jelinek, and myself, Michael Cohen, along with Phil Alberstadt. It may be a new day politically, but nowadays the landscape is more confusing than ever. Donald Trump may have lost the battle for the presidency, but in many ways, Trumpism is still winning the war on the state and local level. Maya Culpa is here to help guide you through the wilderness and keep you informed. And let's face it, we all want Trump, Rudy, and the rest of these seditious traitors to see justice. And folks, I promise you, it's coming. So stay tuned as I guide you through the twists and turns of the criminal process that will ultimately see them behind bars. Maya Culpa, nothing but the truth. Oh.